0: Well, this week we're in Matthew chapter 27 and we're looking uh, at the account of Judas. At least that's what drew us here initially. And I struggled this week with um, what to do with the account of Judas. Trying to think about how to approach this in a way that could be helpful to us in our own walk of faith. And as I thought more and more about that, I... The theme that kept coming back to my mind was the, was the real issue of guilt. Judas was a guilty man, and he took an approach to his guilt, of course, that ended in his own uh, destruction. But guilt is a, is a real uh, phenomena, for sure, in the, in the world. I mean, if I were to ask you how many of you have ever felt guilty about something, I'm sure that every single person here could raise their hand from the littlest ones to the, you know, to the most senior saints. We have all experienced guilt. Some of you, perhaps even now, are laboring under a certain uh, burden of guilt, feelings of guilt, and so forth. And the symptoms of guilt can be really debilitating. Uh, the emotional symptoms, it, it, it can be a, a certain anxiety that accompanies it, particularly an anxiety uh, with regard to the potential of future punishment can create tremendous anxiety in the, in the human heart. Uh, there's senses of shame that can accompany guilt, humiliation even, uh, a need to hide. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When the Lord approached them, they hid from him. So there is a, often with guilt, there is a desire to hide uh, and often from God. There is grief that accompanies guilt. There is um, even sometimes a feeling of dirtiness, kind of a moral dirtiness that goes with guilt and it can even eventuate in depression. So there's really nothing positive uh, in terms of the emotions that accompany guilt. And I think we can all uh, attest to that. We we have all experienced it, um, not once, but frequently in our lives. And I think that if we were to go around the room, we could... We could indeed say yea verily to all of these kinds of emotions, feelings that attach themselves to guilt. But a question that we need to ask ourselves as we begin together this morning is what is guilt? What exactly is guilt uh, that elicits all of these really uh, negative consequences? And guilt, we, we need to start with this, guilt is a state of being. Guilt is a, a state of being. It's the state of a person who has either intentionally or unintentionally violated a law or a rule or a principle that's been established by an authority in a position over them. Let me say that again. Yeah. Guilt is a, is a state of being or it's the state of a person Who has intentionally or unintentionally violated a law, a principle, or a value established by an authority to which they are subject? That authority may be external to them, such as another human being or God Himself, or it can be internal. That is, the authority can be the certain uh, standards that they've established themselves within their own hearts and minds. And a violation of those standards brings with it guilt. It brings with it guilt. Now we need to differentiate, as, as we begin here this morning, the difference between guilt and feeling guilty. And that's something that we often conflate together. One can be in a state of guilt without feeling it, without feeling guilty. Feelings do not establish guilt, nor do feelings remove it, nor do feelings remove it. The feelings of guilt come from our conscience examining the various rules or, or uh, law. That, uh, that we are subject to and then evaluating our thoughts and our words and our deeds against that law or those principles or those rules and then recognizing that we're falling short of them. That's where the feeling comes from. So it's the, it's the work of the internal conscience that's prosecuting us against these rules, laws, principles, so forth, values that are governing us and and thus judging us worthy of condemnation. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans Chapter 2, where he says the conscience either excuses or accuses the Gentile world. So the feeling of guilt, but the feeling is, doesn't, isn't the same as the reality. Let's say that again. You, you can be guilty in a state of guilt without feeling it. And maybe I need to say this as well, that whenever you do feel guilty, though you are guilty. So it only runs in one direction, okay? Feelings don't establish it, but if you are feeling guilty, you are guilty. Now, the rule, the value, the principle, the the law by which you have been judged guilty may not be a true principle, a true value, a true law, true meaning that it accords with the Word of God. It could be something that has been imposed upon you by an outside authority or from your own misunderstandings. So probably the most obvious example to talk about on a morning like this and in a place like this is the whole question of legalism. Legalism, that is a a set of rules and duties and responsibilities that get imposed upon Christians, sometimes from outside sources, and sometimes the Christians do it to themselves. And then when they violate one of them, they feel guilty about it. And some will say, well, you just need to get over that because that's a false sense of guilt. There is no such thing as a false sense of guilt. If you feel guilty, you are guilty. Okay? What can be false is the principle or the law by which you have been judged guilty. That needs to change. So if you're, if you're suffering under a burden of the, of the guilt feelings of legalism, what has to change is the uh, principles by which you're governing your life. They need to be brought into accordance with the truth of the word of God. What we should never do, and again, Paul addresses it in Romans, to him who thinks it is sin, to him it is sin, Paul says, what we should never do is to train ourselves to ignore feelings of guilt. Okay, We should never, ever do that, because that would be to blunt one's conscience, okay? to sear it eventually. So never do that. So if you're feeling guilty, you are guilty, what needs to be examined is what it, law, principle, ethic, so forth... Are you finding yourself deficient against? And let's look at that and see whether it's true or not. Now, removing the feelings of guilt, humanity has all kinds of ways to do it, right? There are all kinds of methods people uh, take to deal with the the, uh, feelings of guilt. They anesthetize themselves often with the help of outside activities or chemicals. Try to make it go away. Fill, them, fill their lives with hedonistic pleasures and to see if that can blunt it. But the reality is there's only one truly effective way to remove guilt. Only one. There's only one thing that removes guilt. And maybe what I should say is there's only one person who can remove guilt. And we will look at that this morning. So, we're here in Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to look at, at um, kind of an overview of verses 1 to 26. So don't get too nervous. We'll come back later to, to it and look at it in a little closer detail. And I'm getting ready to leave on vacation here. So I've got a lot to say uh, to keep you hold you over while I'm gone. But I'm going to start by reading uh, verses 1 through 26 of Matthew chapter 27. Now. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. In this account here, as recorded by Matthew, everyone has blood on their hands. They are all have red hands with the blood of the innocent, and it is almost like Lady Macbeth, they are trying to get rid of it. Each one trying to desperately and failing, as it were, to get rid of the stain of their guilt. So what I want to do as I look at this with you together is to deal somewhat quickly, admittedly, but I want to deal with five ways to deal with guilt. I want to look at five ways to deal with guilt, of which only one, only one grants the temporal and eternal relief that our soul needs and longs for. So five ways to look at guilt. Four are the wrong way. One will be the right way. Okay, Four wrong ways. One right way to deal with guilt. So jumping right into it. Number one. How to deal with guilt. You can reject it. You can reject it like the Jewish leadership. This is a wrong approach. But you can try to reject it. Now notice again here back in verses 1 and 2. It's the morning, uh, Matthew tells us. This is the third stage, the third phase of the Jewish trial. So, in the illegal nighttime trial that has been conducted by first Annas and then Caiaphas, and they got the sentence of condemnation that they were looking for against Jesus... By suborning perjury, bringing forward all of these false witnesses. Now they want to dress it up a little bit and make it legal. They want, to, they want to put a bow on the thing. And so they call together the entire Sanhedrin. Notice it says all the chief priests and elders of the people. They bring them together. Probably in the temple, likely. But they draw them all together. The great ruling council of Israel, the 70 elders of the nation. And they draw them together. And notice that it says they conferred together against Jesus. This was not for the purpose of determining Jesus' innocence or guilt. They had already, that was a foregone conclusion. They had already in their minds... Uh, determined that he was guilty and that he had to die, and they were looking just for the the reason to do it, the basis for doing it. And so they gather together here. It's a legal formality to try to take the nighttime trial and, and make it a daytime trial, which was required by their law. But they confer together, they talk to one another, they discuss, they meet with a purpose of trying to put Jesus to death. In the process, they all become accessories to the crime. Every single one of them who met that day was an accessory to the crime. That is, they bore the guilt. They bore the guilt of innocent blood. And notice how they try to evade that reality when, verse 4, Judas shows up there and he, bearing his own guilt, and we'll look at him here in a couple of minutes, uh, he comes back to them, and he is struck in his conscience. And so he tries to, to pass it to them, and they will have no part of it. So Judas says to them in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now listen, if he has sinned by betraying innocent blood, then they are culpable of it too, right? Because they're the ones who paid him in order to get the betrayal. They're the ones who suborned the perjury that was necessary to get the charge of condemnation for blasphemy that they had received. And so they are guilty too, but they want nothing to do with this crime. And they want nothing to do with him. They have used him up. They have kicked him to the side of the road. And they want nothing to do with him. And so notice how they respond to him. What is that to us? It's your problem, basically, is what they're saying. We don't care whether Jesus is innocent or not. That's not the point. He's a troublemaker. We're going to get rid of him. We've got what we need. We're now going to proceed forward with the predetermined and foregone conclusion, which is we will execute him. And beloved, it is their very own words that condemn them. What is that to us? It should be a lot to you. For if Judas is correct... That he has sinned by betraying innocent blood, then you too are guilty for bringing a charge of condemnation against innocent blood. It is all over you. What is that to us? And then notice, see to that yourself. Basically, uh, colloquially, it's your problem. It's your problem, not ours. They rebuff him. They, they just push him aside. They kick him to the side and they say to him, it, it, the, it, the sin, if there is any, is your problem, not ours. Not our problem. Of course, later he throws the money back at them. But notice down to verse 6. When the, uh, when the money comes there, they are suddenly smitten by a sense of conscience here. It's really uh just terrible, actually, but the hypocrisy of it all. They say it's not lawful, uh, verse 6, to put in the temple treasury uh, this money because it's the price of blood. This is the money we paid uh, to have somebody executed. And so, you know, it, it would be not good, it would be impious for us to to um, put this money into the temple treasury. After all, uh, we have paid him to, del- to, to betray Jesus, and we've, we've suborned the perjury by bringing in all the false witnesses. So this whole transaction is really, really bad. And so in this, you know, being good law keepers, in the spirit of Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 18, which says the wages of prostitution are not an acceptable gift to the Lord. So sort of building on that principle, they say, hey, we can't, uh, we can't use this money for the, God, for the Lord's work. This is bad. This is tainted money. This is blood money. So they acknowledge it's blood money. And they don't want to be defiled by it, and they certainly don't want to defile the temple treasury with it. These are the ones whom Jesus says they tithe the insignificant. Remember that back in uh, Matthew 23? They tithe the insignificant while ignoring the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy. And that is truly them. They don't want to put the blood money into the temple treasury because it's tainted with the blood of an innocent man and yet they are the very ones who created this scenario to begin with. So what do they do verse 7? They confer together. Let's talk it over. What are we going to do? They confer together and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Okay, some brilliant person among them comes up with an idea. I'll tell you what, let's do this with the money. Let's go buy this uh, this piece of ground called the Potter's Field, and uh, what it would be would be just a, a vacant piece of well, yeah, a vacant piece of ground where uh, the people who made pottery for the temple likely would have dug up their clay. So you kind of get the idea. It was a it was a sand pit of sorts, and so they're going to buy this. And they're going to buy it with the blood money, and they're buying it for a purpose. And the purpose is to make it a burial place for strangers. That is for those who die in Jerusalem without the financial means to arrange for their own burial. In more um, modern um, parlance, uh, certainly the uh, the parlance of the Old West, it's Boot Hill. Okay, they're going to buy Boot Hill. They're going to buy a piece of a cemetery where those people who die who don't have any living relatives and have no financial means to take care of themselves. It's a place we can dump them. And so that's what they do with the money. Now, exactly where this place is, we can only surmise. Um, Evidently, in Matthew's day, verse 8, it was uh, well known. For that reason, that field has been called a field of blood to this day. But that's lost to us, I think. Lost to antiquity, perhaps somewhere in uh, You know, in the Valley of Hinnom, um, at the junction of the Kidron, so somewhere south of the city of Jerusalem. Not good ground is the idea. Not good ground. It's just a place to dump the bodies um, of those who die without means and to uh, to give them a proper Jewish burial. Now, notice uh, that in this, uh, Matthew finds the fulfillment of prophecy. Verses 9 and 10. Really interesting here. This, um, this wicked and hypocritical act, right, of, of paying somebody to betray Jesus and then, uh, then calling it blood money and then saying, oh, we need to do something good with it. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let's just buy a field where we can bury these people. And, and Matthew sees this as the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and in particular and, sp- and specifically, it's the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And an allusion, I think, to Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. That's where the idea of the potter comes from. Now, this is one of those sections of Matthew's gospel that is particularly difficult. And you can put a big stack of commentaries and read them all. And you come away from it and you go, wow, this is a really difficult uh, section of the scriptures. And it's difficult at a couple of different levels. Uh, Number one, uh, Um, Matthew says that it's Jeremiah's prophecy that is fulfilled, but the problem is that it's Zechariah's prophecy that's being quoted. So immediately that creates a mmm moment. You know, you want to know what an mmm moment is. You kind of scratch the the little gray cells and you try to get them to uh, work. So that's an issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, Beyond that is uh, how it fulfills this uh, prophecy is also a bit of a conundrum. So here's my, uh, here's my short answer to you. My short answer to you is this, is, is that the prophecy, and I think the allusion in Jeremiah 19 to, uh, to the potter uh, flows into this, um, these statements here. And then the, the explicit statements out of Zechariah 11, they both relate to the, to the unfaithfulness of the leadership of Israel. Together, they speak about the nation and its leaders and that they would reject God and that ultimately God would reject them. That's the gist of those prophecies. So I think what Matthew is doing here is he's, he's pushing them together and he's finding in those prophecies and, and, their, and their statements about Israel's unfaithfulness of its leadership and God's response to it. He's finding a fulfillment here in these uh, behaviors and activities of the leadership of the nation some um, 600 years later. Now it's also, as I say, it's interesting that he attributes it to Jeremiah when the, when the citation comes from Zechariah. So how in the world does he do that? And I think how he does that is that Jeremiah is a more well-known, uh, if I can say it this way, a, a more significant prophet in the history of the nation. He's a major prophet because he wrote a major work And so his name gets attached to this. Now, we have certain rules in our culture about how we cite sources, right? If you've ever had to write any kind of an academic paper, uh, immediately they they give you all of these rules of citation. And there is, I remember when I started seminary, they gave us this book called uh, Terabian, Kate Tarabian. She wrote this book about you know, all the proper ways to, to do all of this citation and do your bibliography and your footnotes and all of this. They're ex- acceptable academic standards. They don't have any of them. Okay? They're not really interested in them. So within the Jewish context, uh, exact quotations with footmark- uh, footnotes and bibliographies and so forth just wasn't their approach. So they were very comfortable uh, pushing together two prophecies or pieces of two prophecies and even attributing them to one prophet. And they would normally attribute it to the, to the more well-known prophet, to the major prophet, if the other part came from a minor prophet. And I want to illustrate it to you, just so you don't think I'm totally out to lunch here, from uh, Mark chapter 1. just want you to notice something. In Mark chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3. It's just a couple of pages to your right, Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark starts out. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now here's the problem. The first part in, in uh, verse 2 is actually not a citation from Isaiah the prophet. It's actually a citation from Malachi the prophet. It's verse 3 that's the citation of Isaiah the prophet. So you see the same basic approach, which is, I've got two prophets. I'm pushing together pieces of their prophecies because they relate to the same thing. I'm not going to take the time to you know, detail it all out in footnotes for you. I'm just going to tell you, listen, it comes from... In this case, Isaiah in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, when he, when he pushes together Jeremiah and uh, Zechariah, he says it comes from Jeremiah. Okay, So that's just their approach to things. But the point of it all is that in this behavior by the leadership of the nation, Matthew sees the fulfillment of those prophecies that spoke of the leader's wickedness and turning from the God of Israel and God's ultimate turn from them. Matthew sees much in the life of Jesus as fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, 15 times in his gospel, he speaks of an event and calls it the fulfillment of prophecy. It begins with the virgin conception in 122. It ends here with the denial of Israel in Okay, So from the beginning to the end, Matthew wants you to know that the life of, of Jesus is the, is the life of the Messiah who fulfilled the prophecy. But back to our question of guilt. The uh, Jewish leadership here is absolutely guilty, but they are, they are rejecting their own guilt. And, and in their hypocritical holiness, they're trying to saddle Judas with it. Okay? So the first approach, the first wrong approach to guilt is you can try to reject it. And that's what they did. Secondly, you can seek to reduce it. You can seek to reduce it, and that's what Judas does. So the leadership of the nation tries to reject it. Judas tries to reduce it. Matthew is the only gospel writer to narrate what becomes of Judas. Luke will give us a couple of verses in, Luke, in Acts chapter 1. We'll look at it here in a couple of minutes. But, but of the four gospel writers, Matthew is the only one who takes up what happens to Judas. With all the others, he, he just kind of disappears off of the scene, off of the stage. Matthew takes the time to, to speak to us about it. And he gives us this little vignette here in uh, verses 3 through 10. And the vignette that he gives us is out of chronological order. It is thematically related. Okay, so it's not like the uh, chief priests, they met together, the uh, chief priests and elders, they met together in the, in the morning. They came up with their charge for, uh, for Jesus, and then they're going to take him off to Pilate, and it's at that, that moment that Judas comes to them. No, I think Judas comes to them later. Actually, I think Judas comes to them after Pilate pronounces his condemnation. It's at that point in time that Judas realizes what has happened. His conscience is smote. And he comes to them. And the reason I say that is simply this. The leadership of the nation would have been involved, as Matthew shows us, in pressing the charges before Pilate. They would have not been in the temple. They would have had no time for Judas. So I think, it, I think chronologically that what we read of Judas happens later. But Matthew includes it here because it thematically fits into the comparison between Peter right, and his proper response and Judas and his incorrect response. So Matthew includes it. Now, Judas is trying to reduce his guilt. And how does he try to reduce his guilt? He tries to undo what he has done. That's Judas' approach. Turn back the hands of time. Undo what he has done. Verse 3. Then when Judas, so the then, I believe, is when Pilate pronounces his condemnation. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Okay? So when he saw what he uh, had done, he felt remorse. Verse 3. And there's kind of a fourfold progression here in Judas' life. It begins with remorse. He recognizes the enormity of the situation. He has set in motion. He becomes overwhelmed with his guilt. He is desperate to try to find relief from his guilt. Matthew specifically uses a Greek word here that's translated Judas felt remorse. That's not the same word that is uh, that is normally used for uh, repentance. So it's not that Judas has repented, he has become overwhelmed with remorse. The idea is regret. He has changed his mind specifically for him. He is regretting what he has done and what it has produced, and he is desiring to undo it. He wants to go backwards and have a do-over, a mulligan. That's what he's looking for. And so he comes to them and he makes his confession in verse 4, right? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now that's significant. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He he realizes he has committed a great iniquity. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 27 and verse 25, he now lies under the curse of God. Deuteronomy 27, 25, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. So he recognizes he resides under the curse of the Mosaic Covenant. You remember when they entered into the land, Moses said, or God told Moses to tell them, you're going to stand on two mountains, right? And you're going, to, you're going to yell back and forth to each other, you know, cursed is he who does that and blessed is he who does this. And so the curses of the Mosaic covenant are here. One of them is to take a bribe in order to, to strike down an innocent person. That's exactly what Judas has done. And so the enormity of his betrayal is now being pressed home on his conscience and he is desperate. So he tries, verse 3, to make restitution. That's kind of his fourth uh, approach here in the, in, the, uh, in the chain. He returns the 30 pieces of silver. He tries to bring the money back. If I just return the money, make my confession, then you know, I'm going to get out from under this guilt. So he's trying to relieve his conscience. He tries to return the money. He's trying to undo the situation, but he cannot turn back the hands of time. He cannot. When I use a computer, I am, um, I am really not very good at it at all. I type with two fingers at a blinding speed, <laughs> often hitting the wrong character, uh, which has made me very uh, familiar with the, with the little um, mouse function, edit, undo. Okay? And if you keep doing that, you can keep going backwards until you get back to where you're supposed to be. Edit, undo. But there are no edit, undo's in life. Life cannot be edit, undone. What we do, we've done. And there are consequences often that accompany them. For Judas, he is trying to make restitution. He is trying to return the money. And he's trying to return the money because he believes that that with that he can evade what's what's happened here. He can he can you know get over it, but it can't happen. Now in the scripture there's a place for restitution. It is spoken of. It's written into the law, but restitution can only follow repentance to be effective. Once one has repented, then restitution may be appropriate. But it is. A uh, restitution is never a substitute for repentance. And that's what Judas is trying to do. And it kind of reminds me of a story of a, of a man uh, who had been cheating on his income taxes for a very long time. And, uh, and he is beginning to be overwhelmed by the guilt that it comes to him by cheating on his taxes. And it's really starting to haunt him. And he decides to do something about it. So he sits down and he composes a letter to the IRS. And it goes something like this. Dear sirs, I have been cheating on my income tax for years. And it has reached the point where I can't sleep anymore. Enclosed, please find payment for what I have stolen. If I find that I still cannot sleep, I will send you the balance. (laughs) Yeah. You can never... Edit, undo, through restitution. Putting back something you have stolen doesn't make you not guilty. But that often is our approach. It's the unbelieving approach. Because there's no repentance here, He is is wallowing in his remorse. The restitution is not going to deliver him. And so he descends finally into despair. You see it in verse 5. He throws the, the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and he departs. And he hangs himself. He hangs himself. Now he can't throw away his guilt. Right? I mean, he can throw the money back. But he can't throw his guilt away. It remains on him. So he goes out and he hangs himself. I suspect that when Judas learns that they had used the money to buy a burial place for those who were outside the covenant of Israel, he thought that that would be an appropriate place to go do the deed. Because if you go to Acts chapter 1, And again, Luke's little parenthetical here is the only other information we have. Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. I'll leave it to a doctor to give you that kind of a description, right? And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that, in their own language, that field was called haklad, Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. So Matthew says he hung himself. Luke says that he fell and he, and he burst open. And so, how do you reconcile that? Well, through the years, people have proposed a couple of different things. One possibility is he hung himself on a branch of a tree that hung out over the kind of the canyon where they had been digging the clay for the pottery, and the branch broke and he fell and his body burst open. That's certainly a good possibility as any, I suppose. But the point of the matter is, is that Judas cannot get away from his guilt. He cannot reduce it. He has no ability to reduce it through uh, his method of restitution. And so in despair, he goes and he compounds his sin and he kills himself. He kills himself. So, You can try to reject it, but it doesn't work. You can try to reduce it, but that doesn't work. Thirdly, you can try to evade it. You can try to evade it, and that's what Pilate does. Pilate tries to evade his guilt. You notice, uh, verse 18, Pilate knows why Jesus has been handed over to them, right? There is verse 18. Because of envy, he has been handed over. So Pilate knows the deal. Pilate had a network of informers in the city of Jerusalem. He lived himself in Caesarea. He would only come to the capital city of Jerusalem at the time of the festivals in order to keep peace among the people because they got really rowdy at those times, not in terms of parties, but in terms of um, their nationalism would rise up and that would be a good time for revolution. So he would bring in the, you know, the Roman troops and he would make sure that he kept the lid on the city. So he knew what was going on. He would have known of the triumphal entry on Sunday. He would have known of the ongoing disputes in the temple on Monday and Tuesday. He would have recognized that Jesus had bested the authorities in all these matters of their own law. And in all of that, he would recognize that their big beef against Jesus was not that he was some kind of a criminal, but that he threatened their power base. He knows it. And that's their reason to want to get rid of him, and he knows it. But, in spite of this knowledge, Pilate refuses to act righteously here. He refuses to act honorably. He is the representative of the Roman legal system, and the Romans prided themselves on a fair justice system. And he is a representative of that system, and he will, instead of doing the right thing, right, and setting Jesus free, And he goes, we'll talk about it, he goes through a lot of machinations to try to do it. But in the end, he he opts for political expediency and he ends up knowingly crucifying an innocent man. And I'd like to suggest to you he crucified his own soul in the process. But notice his approach. He wants to get rid of the blood. And so, verse 24, he takes water, and in front of the people, he washes his hands. That's a symbolic action, right? I'm washing my hands of this. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. He tries to pass it back to the nation. He tries to evade it. But you cannot uh, do that. You cannot just remove yourself from the guilt. You cannot just evade it. And Pilate is unable to do so. Beloved, maybe uh, young people this morning, you're in a situation with some of your friends and they're talking about doing something that you know is wrong. Maybe um, Maybe it's to go into a store and steal something, shoplift something. And you know it's wrong. And you don't want to participate in it because you know it's wrong. And you tell your friends it's wrong. shouldn't do this. Don't do this. But you, you go in the store with them anyway. Or you stand outside while they go in. And, and basically what, what you do is you say, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. I wash my hands of you. Go do what you're going to do. But without you doing the right thing, which is to stop them from doing it, even if that means jeopardizing your friendship with them, then you are guilty. The guilt remains on you. You are an accessory to the crime. So there's a big difference here for Pilate. And that that point runs to, to you if you find yourself in that situation. You can't just turn the other way. You can't just say, well, I'll remain doing the right thing here and, and it's all of their fault. No, if you're, if you're there, you're part of it. You're part of it. Okay? You cannot evade it in that fashion. Fourth. Fourth wrong approach is you can underestimate it you can underestimate guilt like the nation of israel did that day it's really quite astounding on that morning the nation chose a murderer over their messiah right verse 21 the governor said to them which of the two do you want me to release for you they said barabbas give us the murderer we'll take the murderer And in doing that, they completely underestimated the enormity of their crime. The enormity of their crime. Look at verse 25. And all the people said, right? Pilate's trying to evade it. And all the people said, hey, give it to us. We'll take it. His blood shall be on us and on our children. In effect, they pronounced a curse upon themselves. They took upon themselves and upon their offspring this incredible guilt. Incredible guilt. Jesus has said earlier in Matthew 23 and and verse 36, Truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Remember where he says that That upon you the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the prophet, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of this comes on this generation. And given the opportunity, they actualized it in space and time and said, yeah, it's on us. It's on us. They had no idea what they were saying. They so underestimated the guilt of their decision. You can underestimate it, beloved. And they did. So those are four ways not to deal with guilt. Right? Reject it. Seek to reduce it. Try to evade it. Underestimate it. There is a fourth way. And it really flows out of Verse 75 of chapter 26, and it's like Peter, you can be delivered from it. Okay, Like Peter, you can be delivered from it. We talked about this last week. Peter is restored. Peter repents, confesses, turns back, and is restored. How do I know that? Well, I find him among the disciples at the tomb on Easter morning. Right? Seeking after the resurrected one. I go to John chapter 21 and see there explicitly where Jesus restores him to his place of leadership among the apostolic band in John 21. I find him in Acts chapter 2 leading the disciples and and preaching that powerful sermon at Pentecost in which 3,000 of his countrymen are and believe, and are saved. So Peter is delivered. Peter is delivered. And, beloved, that's the only way to deal with guilt. You have to be delivered from it. And the only way you can be delivered from it is God must act on your behalf. He must act on your behalf. Woven into the nation of Israel and into their their culture, into their worship system, was a ritual that God had established about 3,000 years before this time. And in that, in that ritual that God had established, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats. And he would slaughter one and take the blood in to be spread on the altar. And then he would put his hands on the head of the other goat, and he would confess over that goat the iniquity of the people for the year. And then that goat would be sent off into the wilderness. It it became what the Bible calls the scapegoat. We talk about such and such a person as a scapegoat. That goat would symbolically carry away the sin of the people which had been atoned for. Jesus is the fulfillment of that ritual. He is both the one who died and the one who carries away the sin of his people. He alone is the one who can take the guilt away. He alone. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that for he who is in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation, right? It is only when we are united by faith to Jesus Christ, when we partake with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, that the guilt of our sin is removed. Only then. Simple faith. Believing. God extends to us his mercy and his grace. And the guilt is lifted. Beloved, there are four ways to deal with guilt that, are, that leave you in despair and still under its burden. You can try to reject it, pretend you're not guilty. You can seek to reduce it by your human effort. You can try to evade it and pass it to someone else. You can underestimate the significance of it. Or you can be delivered. Or you can be delivered. The question to ask yourself is what will I choose? What will I choose? May God extend his mercy and grace that you would choose Christ. Father, it's a significant discussion in fact it is the most significant discussion where do we stand are we condemned are we in a state of guilt or has the sentence been lifted has the guilt been taken from us has the penalty for our for our transgressions been paid has christ taken it for us. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between fearing you or being drawn to you in a loving relationship. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would press down upon those who hear. Their destiny would be settled even today. And Father, for those who are your children already and are still laboring under guilt, may you enable them to apply the truth of what we've talked about this morning. Flee to the cross. The gospel is still for them. To recognize that that when Jesus paid for their sin, he paid for all of their sin, past, present, and future. If there are things that need to be done in terms of restitution, Lord, may you enable them to do that, but only as it follows their repentance, their confession, their recognition that they are helpless and hopeless outside of Christ. Do your good work in us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.